morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Stephan. I'm glad to be with you today. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we'll read verses 11 through 32. Uh, we're in Lent, of course, as you know, and we're doing a sermon series where we're talking about taking things up for Lent instead of giving things up for Lent. So the idea is, what are we going to take on instead of what are we going to let go of, which is kind of just a different way of saying the same thing when it comes to Lent, but, you know, something slightly different. Um, this morning, we're talking about taking up reconciliation. So we're, we're reading this, uh, this lectionary story, from the, uh, which is about the prodigal son, which is maybe one of the most famous stories in, in all of the Bible. It's also one of our foundational stories here at Alger Park Church. That's one of the ways we talk about it. It's a foundational story for Alger Park Church. So if you were to attend Alger 101, and that's today, right? So if you were to attend Alger 101, we'd talk about a series of stories. One of the stories that we talk about as a foundational story for us is this story about the prodigal son. Um, so it's really important um, about having to do with the nature of Christianity and the nature of our ministry here together. So let's read it um, and take in God's word together. Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. Listen to God's word. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven, against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and is filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. 
So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you, gave me, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. I love the way this story ends. Notice there's there's no resolution to this story, is there? It ends on a cliffhanger. It ends with a disagreement between two members of a family. It's not a, it's not a tidy story. It's not a tidy parable. It doesn't get wrapped, into, uh, wrapped up into a very convenient moral. It just ends. It sets up this gigantic, question, uh, this gigantic problem. It asks a question or two. And then it just ends. Spoiler alert, that's also how this sermon is going to end. I was challenged this week by a couple of scholars, Kenneth Bailey and Barbara Brown Taylor. I was challenged by them to see how the the parable of the prodigal son is maybe different than any way that I had read it before. So Bailey and Taylor point out that we 21st century Americans tend to interpret this parable like 21st century Americans, which... I guess is something you can't really blame us for. But when we read this story, when we consider the things going on here, uh, we approach it with the frame that we have, with the understanding that we have, with the, the, the social um, assumptions that we have. But we have to be careful about that when we're reading the Bible. Because when we consider that the goal of the church is that we become more like Jesus rather than Jesus become more like us, right? It's it's important that we get into the mind of these first century people, that we consider the things that Jesus was considering when he told this parable, that we hear things the way people heard them when they first heard this parable. So what did Jesus mean to communicate when he told this story? And what did Jesus' listeners hear when they first heard this story? So for us, 21st century Americans, when we hear this story, we hear the story of a young man who decides to go his own way and to leave his parents' home and to do his own thing. And as we hear that, there's at least part of us that says, well, you know, good for him. Because isn't that what we all want our children to do, to leave the house? Can I get an amen? No, you don't have to. I mean, right? We want them to make good choices and we want them to stay in touch because we love them. But we also want them to leave. We want them to differentiate. 
We want them to figure out who they are. We want them to individuate. We want, to li- want them to live their own lives. So we 21st century American readers have a tendency to read this parable, of course, through that frame, through those eyes, and we read it as being almost entirely about this younger son because, in a way, he's telling our story. That's the one plot point in this parable that we resonate with the most because we get it. That's similar to what we've all done. It's similar to what we're hoping for for our kids. And so this is what we normally do in the vein of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? It feels very normal to us to go off and do our own thing. So here's the message that we very often associate with this parable. Here's the message. When we decide to go our own way and we get off the tracks, if we say we're sorry and we go back home, there will be a banquet waiting for us. And when that day comes, there will be an improbable feast given in our honor by a Father whose divine grace exceeds all human reason. That's the American version of the prodigal son that we tell ourselves. And you know what? It's a perfectly good story. Um, And it isn't even necessarily wrong. I'm I'm not saying that it's wrong. It is a reading of the text. But it's a very American reading of the text. So how was this story heard and understood in its original context? How was this story heard and understood by first century Palestinian ears? Chances are that unlike this group, nine out of ten of Jesus' listeners were rural farmers, just like this family in the parable. And their land was their livelihood. They received their land in a trust from their ancestors and they held their land in a trust for their children. There was no courthouse where they could record their claim to the land. Those claims on the land were kept in the memory of the community. Everybody knew who owned what. Everybody knew what family lived where and who could farm, who could plant up to what point. Everybody knew. And honor was everything. So if you were to break the faith of your community, you were putting everything at risk, especially your family's land. More than you and I can even imagine, during this time in history, in this place, people counted on being good neighbors and having good neighbors. When you needed help getting your crops in, or raising a barn, or birthing a baby, or digging a grave, you counted on your neighbors the same way that they counted on you. There was this common agreement that everyone in a community had each other's backs, and there was a common agreement that nobody was going anywhere. 
And if things worked out the way that they were supposed to, then your children would marry the children of your neighbors. And then that would strengthen the bond between the two families. And if it strengthened the bond between your two families, it would strengthen the, the bond of the larger community. And by that reasoning, everybody would, would benefit. So in this world, there was, no, there was no individual rights apart from family rights and community rights. Barbara Brown Taylor says, Identity was conferred in the plural, not the singular. It's just the way it was. So when we understand these cultural dynamics, the parable of the prodigal son is much more like the parable of the prodigal community. It's much more like the parable of the disassociated social ecosystem which is not a very catchy name, but I think it's accurate. It's the story about a weak patriarch and maybe an absentee mother who raised two disrespectful sons who are causing a great deal of shame in a community where property and heritage is prized above all of the things. And when the property goes up for sale from this one family, it sends a tremor throughout the entire ecosystem of this community. And everything begins to fall apart for everyone. Kenneth Bailey, the guy I mentioned before, he's, a, he's a, uh, an expert in like, the cultural social dynamics in first century Palestine. He says that this, this parable isn't so much a repentance story which is how we Americans tend to read it. He says it's much more a reunion story or a reconciliation story. And it's not so much a story about one kid who makes a bunch of dumb mistakes. It's a story about a whole community that suffers the ramifications of those mistakes. we tend to make this story about these individual situations where there's this individual repentance of the son before the father. But really, Bailey says, the story is about the reconciliation of this whole ecosystem. The, the, the mother to the father, the father to the sons, the sons to one another, the family to the neighbors, the neighbors to the whole broader community. This is a parable about a whole entire social ecosystem. The entire community is affected by what happens in this story. For the father, this story has a double blow. Not only does he need to break up his estate, which was the generational lifeline for his, uh, for his ancestors, but now he's only down to one son who can help care for him in his old age. And for this mother, who may be upstairs, we don't know, listening behind her bedroom door, she gets fleeced in this whole thing too. When her husband dies, all of his wealth jumps straight past her to her sons. And one of them is already gone. And who knows what she can trust this other one to do because he does not seem like that great of a guy, does he? And then think beyond this family. Uh, in order for this father to give his 
son half of his inheritance or half of his, what, he, what he owned, the father would have to sell the property. So he sells the property to an outside entity, which is something that was not done in this day and age. And when he does that, when he sells the property to an outside entity, he puts in jeopardy all of the jobs, all of the livelihood for those who worked on the family farm. And for those who worked on the, uh, for those who worked on the family farm. The repercussions go further and further out. The younger son was causing significant disorder, disorder in this social ecosystem. One of the ways that we know about how, with the younger son, one of the ways we know what he did was so reprehensible is because the Talmud describes a ceremony to deal with people like the younger son. There's an ancient Jewish ceremony, which is called the Ketzatza, Ketzatza, which was a ceremony to, to punish Jewish boys who lose their family's inheritance. Like, there's a thing for that. To punish Jewish boys who lose their family's inheritance, especially if they lose it to Gentiles, as this young man did. Here's how the ceremony works. Um, if a young man loses his family's inheritance and ever has the guts to show up back in the village again, the villagers were to fill a large clay jar with burnt nuts and burnt corn to kind of represent how he had charred their relationship. They, they, they take this great big vessel and they fill it with burnt nuts and burnt corn and they break it in front of the kid and they start to scream his name at him, scream his name at him, pronouncing that he is now cut off from his people. Yikes. And after the ketsatsa, the young man would then know that he is a cosmic orphan, that he is a child without a family, and he might as well go back to live on those Gentile farms with those Gentile pigs. So in Luke 15, this, the, the, as the boy's walking back, his hope, apparently, is that he would reach his father before the villagers reached him with a katsatsa, right? That's probably in the back of his mind. And so he has his confession ready. He isn't returning home out of love, and he's not pretending that he is. He's returning home because he's hungry, like he's down to 120 pounds. He's hungry, and he's returning to apply for a job as a hired hand on what is left of the family farm, like it's half the size it used to be, but he's returning to, to get a job, and he's hoping that nobody, he's hoping he's skinny enough that nobody will recognize him on the road home. But someone does recognize him, right? Aristotle once said, great men never run in public. Aristotle was wrong. The father runs out to his son out of love but also out of protection because of the katsatsa and as fast as he can before the villagers can burn nuts and corn he says to his servant 
Uh, we're going to need a robe, we're going to need a ring, and we're going to need some sandals. Maybe he can save his relationship with his son and, and, and his relationship with the family to the community before everything, uh, you know, hits the fan. Uh, he knew that this was going to cost him his honor, of course, but for the father, that was a price that he was willing to pay. So the father turns to his servants and he tells them to bring the best robe in the house, which was his robe. And he tells them to put a ring on the boy's finger, which is probably a family ring or a signet ring. And he tells them to put sandals on his feet because only slaves walk without shoes. And then he orders the servants to kill the fatted calf. Uh, Taylor says, not a goat, not a lamb, not a dozen chickens, but a calf, which is a clear sign that the celebration that is taking place is not a quiet family affair, but a feast of roast veal for the entire village. It's a feast to restore the family's honor as well as a feast to restore the family's son. It's a banquet of reconciliation for a disturbed social ecosystem for anyone who will come. But who will come? That is the central question, my friends. Who will come? What are we going to do with each other? Who will come to your banquet? Whose banquet will you attend? What are we going to do with each other? How are we going to navigate the ways that we have hurt one another? Who will come to the party for the boy who deserves no such party? Who will come and eat the food that has been prepared at the cost of the entire community? Who will lay down their work to celebrate a boy who hasn't worked an honest day himself in months or years? Who will lay down their work to do that? Who will celebrate the return of a boy who gave a choice gesture to his community as he left? Who will do that? Who's going to come to the banquet? Are we willing to attend each other's banquets? Folks, what's going to happen to our ecosystem? How are we going to navigate the ways that we have hurt each other? I guess that's up to us. Pray with me.
Our Father in heaven, uh, we find ourselves right smack in the middle of a number of broken ecosystems. We find ourselves feeling a bit like the younger brother, a bit like the older brother, a bit like the angry and jaded community, and maybe in our best moments, a bit like the father. We're not quite sure, Lord, what's going to happen to our ecosystem. We're not quite sure exactly how we're going to navigate the ways that we've hurt one another. But our prayer today is that as we do this, we might lean toward grace. Thank you for the challenge of your word. We pray that it would disturb us just enough to consider it more and more. And may your spirit be our guide. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.